Coming up, what an excellent day for tubular bells. folks, and welcome to Minute 16 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. All right, so our minute begins with Chris walking down the steps of Georgetown University. And it ends with a close-up on her face as she spies that gloomy priest from earlier. And yes, folks, this is the minute we have been waiting for. I know I've been waiting as well. This is the minute we finally get to meet a brand new character. And that, friends and listeners, is Mike the Driver. Mm -hmm. Yes, Chris's personal driver, Mike. We've made it. We've done it. We can end the show now. Uh, no, I, I feel bad for for teasing, but uh, the movie is teasing us too. We keep catching little glimpses of this priest, right. but th- the movie has decided not to reveal him just yet. And believe me, I am just as eager to talk about him as you are to hear. But for now, we must be satisfied with Mike. Um and also, I feel bad, uh, you know, about uh, uh, joking about Mike. He's an actor mm-hmm. in one of the most iconic films of all time. Hey, Lester, you know mm-hmm. what Mike and Jesuit Dean have that you don't? A role in The Exorcist. So why don't you just back off and shut up? <laughs> I was looking here at the script as well. And in the script, his name is Tommy. So it's, again, one of what? these. <laughs> it says, yeah. Uh, yeah, it says uh, the exact same kind of conversation. But she oh says, I'm going to walk home, uh, Tommy. Yeah. And gives Tommy her Jesus back. Christ. I don't know what? why they would change that, right? It's, it's like, you, you know, obviously changes have to be made. But what, yeah. what's the difference between Mike and Tommy? I don't know. Uh, what means anything anymore? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but yeah, also also interesting because in the book, Carl is the driver in addition to his regular houseman duties. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we mentioned in the last minute that or, or in a previous minute that uh, the end of the story has Chris and Reagan catching a flight back to L.A. while Carl drives the car back on his own. And I know I would totally watch that movie, even if it didn't have anything to do with demons or priests or anything, just Carl stopping to get gas and a big gulp, uh, you know, completely. <laughs> completely stone-faced, um, you know, do you have one of those little hot dogs or whatever? Um, uh, it's like, I would, I will take a big gulp, right? You know, um, having an, Hey pal, don't abuse the, uh, leave a penny, take a penny. Right. right. <laughs> um, you know, having an altercation with, uh, some guy at a Burger King who, you know, <laughs> picks a fight with him and, and who he ends up like snapping like a twig, right. Before getting back on the road. Right. Um, I love just that. An, I, yeah, just an everyday, everyday uh, slice of life for Carl. Yes. Yes. And to that, what kind of music do you think Carl listens to while he's mm. driving? I was saying, um, uh, sister Christian probably. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking up. I was looking up. It's like what's uh, what's what's on the charts, you know, in uh, oh, you know, right. in the early 1970s. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, it's American Pie by Don McLean. <laughs> um, and I think that's how the movie opens and the title appears. He, you know, he passes a billboard with the title on it, just as it gets to, you know, did you write the book of love? Right? <laughs> you faith in God above. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. No. That that'd be that'd be great. And the title, the title will be mm. uh, uh, "Dude, Where's My Carl." Oh, um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had you until then, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> a bad title can ruin a movie. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Um, 
But actually, okay, yes, we, we are talking about music in this minute because right. this is the minute. This is the minute, folks, that we hear that iconic music, which is now and forever associated with this film, though that wasn't always the case. I am speaking, of course, about Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. It was surprising uh, for me to hear that this was like uh, Polymorphia that Ian told us about, that this is not uh, music written specifically for the film. It's uh, right. existing music. It's so weird. The the story of like how all of these um, separate uh, random uh, pieces of art and uh, artists kind of came together for this movie where like maybe that wasn't the original plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really weird. Um, before before we get to Tubular Bells, uh, we got to talk about a guy named uh, Bernard Herrmann. Oh, right. Um, is it Bernard or Bernard? Oh, it might be Bernard. I've always said Bernard, but I, I don't know, actually. Uh, yeah, it's probably... Oh, who knows? <laughs> now you've really thrown me for what did his mother call him? I don't. I mean, know. yeah, I, ho- I hope he knows. I hope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it goes back to like what you were saying about like um, uh, when people read something, uh, you know, they hear it a certain way in their head, and they can't like unlearn it, right? Right. That's the trivia. That's the trivia code is to not make yeah, fun of people yeah. for mispronouncing something, right? Epitome. Um, <laughs> but now, Keenan, I think you know a little bit more about this guy. Could you tell our listeners about uh, Bernard Herrmann? Oh, a little bit. Yeah, he is. He's one of the great composers, and he um, he's been he'd been working in radio, which was uh, coming up during the 1930s and doing like conductors for, I believe, CBS and, and working there. Uh, and then he's moving into movie scores, and and really, really, really hits it off with a bang in 1941 with two movies at once. Uh, he wins an Oscar uh, for The Devil and Daniel Webster, which I think. He you would like a lot. Have you have you seen that one? I know that story well. I've seen iterations of that story. You know, much like the the appointment in Samara. Uh, <laughs> right, very you familiar. Know, yes. <laughs> who doesn't know about these stories? I mean, come on. Right, exactly. And it was sometimes it was like re released as um, uh, not the title of uh, the Devil and Danny Webster, but like all all the money all the money can buy or something like clearly not a not a good title. <laughs> uh, but so you might see that so you might see that as what he won his Oscar for uh, the Devil and Danny Webster or this um, all that money can buy. And at the same time, he does a score for Citizen Kane. Uh, so oh. he he is mostly known for his collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock later in his right. career. Right. But Citizen Kane, for many people, is is the height of Bernard Herrmann's uh, abilities. Um, mm. So if you do know his uh, Hitchcock scores, he was part of Hitchcock's work in the second half of the 1950s when Hitchcock was at the height of his powers. Uh, so that would be uh, Vertigo and North by Northwest and Psycho. And then he's also, uh, even though there's no musical score for Hitchcock's The Birds, Bernard Herrmann is the sound consultant. So he's helping ah. him with like, oh, where should we hear? bird flaps here because we don't have any music ah and uh, you mentioned psychos and 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 i remember reading like he's the one who you know that iconic like like violins like Mm -hmm. Like, right his thought with psycho is that he was going to use a score that was entirely made up of strings so no percussion no brass no no uh, woodwind at all so it's entirely by strings and when you listen to that yeah it sounds from the from the get-go like uh stabbing knives right like that motion of sorry i'm gonna get lost in doing that because <laughs> yeah, that's that you know that's usually um, what people remember the most of that psycho score. Uh, yeah, but it, really, really good stuff. He had done the Day of the Earth sit still, and uh, Kate Fear is a great score of his. And one of the ones that'll come into play a little bit is his score for Taxi Driver, which he composes right before his death in 1975. So Scorsese is using um, the Bernard Herrmann score for Taxi Driver. It, it, it it's basically a horror score, even though Taxi Driver is um, you know not quite a horror film. Right. Um, it has that feeling. Of, of Travis Bickle being a monster and, and of things being in the mind and uh, and him being, uh, you know, a psychopath. 
Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like we we just came off, folks. We just came off of uh, our Halloween episode to get a little oh, yeah. uh, uh, peek behind the curtain of like <laughs> when you're hearing this episode. This is this is we jumped right back on to uh, uh, to record this after the Halloween one, and we had this like uh, discussion about like what constitutes a horror movie. What makes right. like what are what are the what are the the boxes that you got to have you have to check to say okay this is a horror movie, right? Um, yeah. So uh, so yeah, definitely check that uh, that Halloween one out. Yeah, yeah. certainly. If taxi taxi driver, I've never heard. Any Anybody call it a horror movie? I have heard people call it a monster movie, mm-hmm. and which which is really apt for that film. And so, ta- you know, if, if Scorsese, being such a huge film fan, was probably trying to tap into Bernard Herrmann uh, specifically for his um, his uh, Psycho score or his Hitchcock scores. Yeah, yeah, you could see why that would be appealing to um, to William Friedkin because of his love for uh, Citizen Kane, uh, for The Exorcist, um, and uh, everyone's love of Citizen Kane at this time period. Right. Like all of the people of uh, Friedkin's generation were huge Citizen Kane fans. Yes, yes, and certainly Friedkin was uh, as well. And thus, we have this meeting between uh, these these two giants, uh, Herman and Friedkin. So. Uh, uh, Herman actually flies in from London uh, to view a rough cut of the film of The Exorcist, which he does not like much. Uh, and in fact, um, according to Freakin, refers to it as a, quote, piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> um, also, folks, remember when we said that people didn't like the opening scene in Iraq? Well, Herman hated it as well. Not only did he think it dragged, uh, but he said it made it hard for him to compose an overture because it was so jarring and mm-hmm. so different from the rest of the film, um, which kind of makes sense. But, uh, you know, again, I mean, you know where I stand about uh, right. you know, the, the, the Iraq scenes. Um, <laughs> he told Freakin to cut it. Uh, he also had plans to use a church organ, which uh, Friedkin thought was Friedkin thought was uh, a little too on the nose. Um, Herman was also not much interested in like collaboration with Friedkin. He told yeah. Friedkin, yeah, give him give him a rough cut, which he would uh, write the score for and then mail it back to him. Um, yeah, something was- you have to understand. So if you think of like Friedkin and his generation of like having this movie love, the generation that had come before them, like Hitchcock, right? They didn't grow up with movies. They didn't, they weren't film geeks. Um, some of them disdained movies even and they were making movies, right? They liked theater or they liked the novel or they liked opera. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we had Friedkin and his ilk who love these earlier films, but they are making films um, at a time that's very different. So mm-hmm. when you are making a score for, say, Citizen Kane or for um, The Devil and Daniel Webster, right. uh, you didn't collaborate with the director. That's not how it worked in the Hollywood studio system. The director, let, the Citizen Kane might be a bad example, but let's say uh, a more typical film, The Devil and Daniel Webster. Right. The director of that would come on to the film um, pretty late in the period. Like they weren't overseeing the writing of the script. They weren't overseeing the development of it. Um, mm. So this is William Dieterle, who was a pretty major director. And he, um, he'd won an Oscar, or, he, or rather he directed a film that won Best Picture. So, you know, he was a big person, um, but he comes on to a film relatively late, like during pre-production, not during development. His job is to oversee the shooting of the film and to direct the actors and to pick the shots with the cinematographer and um, and then at the editing phase the director goes away so the editor huh. does not the editor does not work with the director they work with the producer of the film the composer does not work with the director they work with the producer of the film um, and that's why in the classical period of the 30s and 40s directors could have three movies in a year that they've directed. Hmm. Whereas in Friedkin's era, right, we have him doing um, two movies, you know, one in 1971, one in 1973, because right. there's all that that build up in development and then all that um, that overseeing of editing and post-production. Interesting. So, yeah, you want the guys from the old days, but the guys from the old days, you know, that you have this nostalgic feeling for don't work the same way that you do in the 1970s. Huh. 
I like that. I, I, I remember um, actually maybe like two days ago, I was listening to a podcast uh, talking about like they were comparing Hereditary to some of the older movies and they, they mentioned Hitchcock and they mm-hmm. mentioned uh, his idea. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. They were talking about like um, Tony Collette in Hereditary was mm-hmm. saying that uh, she has never met a more prepared director uh, in Ari Aster. Oh, wow. um, just, just the way that like he plans everything out and his copious notes, copious preparation and all that stuff. Um, and they talked about Hitchcock and they talked about, um, and this might be anecdotal. You could tell me if I'm, I'm right or wrong in this. This but might it, be a myth that I'm, yeah. I'm fond of popping a uh, <laughs> popping a hole and yes I popping think those go, go ahead um, go ahead <laughs> but um but what you said about about uh you know how how some of these some of this old guard they don't really even like uh like movies mm-hmm. um it, it was uh that Hitchcock's joy was in the uh, uh, preparation was right. in the, uh, you know, getting the set list, getting everything ready. And then, um, and again, anecdotally, it, it was more like, it's like, Oh God, I just, I hate putting it all on film. It was like, <laughs> like that was the, that was the boring part for him. Yes. That seems to be borne out. There's this further myth that I thought you were going to go into that I was going to delight in popping. Oh. Moment, um, which is that Hitchcock would, um, do all the storyboards as you say, and, and prep, prepare everything and then be on set and be very aloof. And he would never look through the camera and and he would just say, like, do exactly what I have in the storyboards. Um, right. And that is not true because, uh, mm. like, this is a great myth. So that's the idea of, like, oh, Hitchcock is this great director. He's planned everything out in his head. There's no mm. room for any changes. It doesn't matter what the actors are doing as long as they're in the right spot. That's not true because, like, that's a myth that you, you've heard over and over again for decades. But when you look at the storyboards that Hitchcock had and you look at the film, they don't match. And for some reason, we've, like, never, like, put that together that, <laughs> that the storyboards don't match because there's just as much um, changes in any other film you know as very well prepared as you are like mm-hmm. filmmaking is this organic thing right it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it changes on the day so it changes from mike the driver to tommy the driver right <laughs> yeah yeah i guess i'm i mean i guess the answer to that is uh you know we as an audience love the you know the story behind the story as mm-hmm. much as the story itself right like we love the it's like oh did you hear about hitchcock oh did you hear about freaking right you know um and what he does and how he operates and, and all this stuff it's it's almost it's it's almost as thrilling to us yeah it you know Hitchcock is the greatest director that we've ever had in film. He will probably always be considered the greatest director we've we've had in film. And we want to, we have ideas about what that means. So that changes throughout the years of what that means of him as a director. And so for a while it was, yeah, that he is this God that, that everything is emanating out of him and he's not collaborative. And that's not exactly true either. Um, So basically like whatever we wanted to be when we were directors, we would say Hitchcock was like, (laughs) Hmm. Um, and speaking of collaboration, so, um, you know, going back to, uh, Herman and Friedkin in this, in this, again, anecdotal conversation, this is, this is all according to Friedkin, but, um, you know, after they're having these, uh, these, uh, disagreements about, uh, the church organ and the opening Iraq scenes, uh, Friedkin kind of like, sadly, he says, um, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Herman, I was hoping for a score as good as the one you did for Citizen Kane, uh, to which Herman replied, well, kid, you should have made a movie as good as Citizen Kane. <laughs> Ouch. You got Herman burned. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh Bernard burn, a Bernard burn. Burn it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and this generation of filmmakers, as I was saying, really worshipped Orson Welles. 
Um, mm. The myth about Orson Welles, which is, I, I say myth, that I don't necessarily mean falsehood, but like the, you know, right. the, the idea that we've built up about Orson Welles is that this is this person who had jumped from radio and revolutionized radio with his War of the Worlds type podcasts, which you are so important that you've read about them, like in your, your regular history books in school, right? The World of the World podcast, not even your film history books, right? Um, and then he, uh, before that, he had revolutionized uh, the theater world and he was doing you know, these radical changes in mise-en-scene, the production design, the costume design and lighting design in a performance of Julius Caesar that he just called Caesar with an exclamation point. That was Shakespeare, but, but, um, the Shakespeare's words, exactly. No, you know, no changes there, but using mise-en-scene and performance to make it about, um, Mussolini's Italy, right? Where it looked like it was fascist Italy. And that's, that was radical. And now we do that all the time, right? You can't find a performance of Shakespeare nowadays that's set in Shakespearean time with Shakespearean costume right. or even yeah. like the time where it's set. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. always some other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's largely because of Orson Welles and his work with John Houseman in the theater. Mm. So um, so we have this person who revolutionizes theater, who then revolutionizes radio and then comes to film and he makes the best movie ever made. Citizen Kane is is like the critic's choice for best movie ever made routinely. Right. That's what yes. that's what gets voted all the time. Um, and then when Orson Welles uh, and that was when he had complete control over his process, he was able to do anything that he wanted to. He had a relatively small budget, but enough enough control he was able to do whatever he wanted as long as he stayed within roughly within the budget um so he then made the best movie ever made and so the myth that comes up is that when when orson welles starts to get more studio interference then his career suffers right that that the more that they don't let him do what he wants the more we see half masterpieces like the magnificent ambersons or the lady from shanghai or touch of evil these are masterpieces to an extent but they are clearly um the victim of studio interference so we see how when you have this new Hollywood crop of filmmakers like Friedkin, uh, Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, De Palma coming up, um, Peter Bogdanovich, um, and they say, well, you know, what what really makes good filmmaking is less studio interference. Right. Right. Let genius filmmakers do what they want to do and give them full carte blanche to have their control over performance and set design and music and everything. Then you'll get Citizen Kane type movies. And you know, the mythos continues on that, 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 that works, that we have the exorcist and that we have star Wars and jaws and taxi driver and movies like that. Interesting that we've, yeah, we've sort of come back to studio interference, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking about like how much in, in involvement they have in, uh, in, in these films. Yeah. So we have talked about, yeah, the, the studios not wanting to make the exorcist, but then when you look at the production of the exorcist, it's relatively free of studio interference, right? As is the French connection. Um, it's mostly Blatty and, and Friedkin having arguments uh, not arguments, but having debates about legitimate things, uh, you know, um, and and it's not about, oh, the budget got cut right before, et cetera. It's actually they keep spending money and they go over budget and you don't see anywhere where the studio is like, we're going to replace you. <laughs> we're going to fire you. It's just like, OK, here's more money. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And yeah, we're definitely going to talk about uh, when they come up these uh, these altercations between Blatty and Friedkin, because there are there are some some really important ones uh, that, that yes. I'm going to talk about. But I yeah. think that they're they're mostly like, oh, I get why why Blatty would say no to this. And I get why Friedkin would yeah. fight for it. Right. 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 But yeah, so Herman is out. He's, he's not going to help our guy because the movie's not as good as Susan Kane. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what movie is what movie is Kane? right? Exactly. The Godfather, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the story goes that the first actual music made for this film was composed by a guy named 
Lalo Schifrin? Oh, goodness. Lalo I Schifrin? don't know. I've always heard oh, no. Lalo, but maybe it's Lalo. Cedo Sidow. <laughs> yeah, he's the composer of the Mission Impossible theme. Oh, oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, so that was on television. So oftentimes, like, um, you know, people either know him from television or know him from film, but he's a major composer. Mm-hmm. Both. He just won the uh, honorary Oscar a couple years ago, actually. Um, oh. Yeah, for his, his score. And I got to sit behind him at USC one day. There <gasps> a sign said, you know, reserved for Lalo Schiffer and don't sit here. I was like, oh, wow. wow. <laughs> Seemed like a nice guy. People were coming up and, and introducing themselves to him, and he had to deal with that when he's just trying to watch a, a show. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's always got to be, like, so hard. Ugh. Now I say like the the first bit of music was uh, was composed by him. Um, however, uh, the combination of music and images in uh, this trailer, this first trailer for The Exorcist, was reportedly too scary for mm. test audiences. <laughs> um, it's also famously said that uh, Friedkin was so incensed upon hearing this composition that he hurled it across the Warner Brothers parking lot. Um, <laughs> classic Friedkin, right there. Um, but there is something to be said about uh, his decision not to use this score. Uh, folks, I've included in the show notes uh, a link to a YouTube video called uh, Lalo Schifrin, The Exorcist, parentheses, Rejected Score. Um, and the first part actually reminds me a lot of uh, polymorphia uh, music that we had in the uh, the Iraq scene mm-hmm. that Ian was talking about uh, by uh, Penderecki. Lots of uh, straining violin strings uh, that here almost sound as if they're trying to imitate human voices in some like hellish choir. It, right. it kind of like goes up and down. It's like this very like plaintive, almost like crying out thing, right? Um, and you can also find the quote band trailer. Uh, on YouTube where they use uh, some of this music with uh, a bunch of like flashing images. And I'm going to say right here, a uh, severe epilepsy warning uh, oh, here. Yeah. Be careful watching that, that band trailer on YouTube, if you are uh, uh, susceptible to that. Um, but yeah, but th- that is on YouTube as well. Um, and there's also other parts of that rejected score on YouTube, including a rock ballad, uh-huh. um, which while well, it's like beautiful and haunting, but it does not fit at all with um, like, w- you know, what we think of as the finished film. But then again, nothing ever does. Right. Music <laughs> that except the music that's in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually a really good score. I was listening. I didn't know that that we had copies of it. I'd heard about this, and I guess I just don't YouTube enough. And, uh, but yeah, listening to it, it's it's good. It's good music, right? Mm-hmm, it just, yeah. you, but you can see why it doesn't work. It is, um, it is telegraphing. It's a horror film a little bit too much. Yeah, little, um, yeah. it sounds a lot like uh, the score that Jerry Goldsmith does for The Omen later on, um, mm. which which uh, you know the, he has an Oscar nominated song for um, for the Ava Satini, which is <laughs> which is like the hellish version of the Ava Maria. Um, yeah, so you could see why Friedman would be like, oh, it's a little too on the nose, but it, it mm-hmm. would work in something like The Omen. Yeah, no, Keenan, you're absolutely right. Um, now, Friedkin says later that he was looking for something closer to Brahms' lullaby, something that recalled the uh, the innocence of childhood. Um, and after searching the Warner Brothers music library with no luck, he comes across this haunting opening to Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells on a record which Warner Brothers was not planning to release. Uh, according to the story, he loved it so much that he bought the rights to use it in the film. Yeah, I've I heard um, that this was the first hit song uh, from Virgin Records, what would become Virgin mm-hmm. Records, the Richard Branson. Uh, now it's a space conglomerate and an airline, and there's a hotel here in Las Vegas. So yeah, I heard that this is their very first uh, single hit. And folks, yeah, again, I mean, Tubular Bells. Tubular Bells is a thing in and of itself. It is separate from The Exorcist as much as um, you know history wants to. 
uh, I guess, uh, uh, combine the two, right. you know, forever and ever, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, like so much so that like you, you buy those, uh, I remember buying those like spooky Halloween music CDs, uh-huh. when, you know, when I was younger and it would be like the exorcist theme and it's not the exorcist theme. It's tubular. It's the first part of tubular bells, right. which, you know, there is, there is much more to that music than just the first part that uh, is used in the exorcist. And it's this very like interesting new age kind of like experimental, uh, um, uh, journey. Uh, and I highly recommend like, it, you know, if you have the time, you know, that's also on YouTube, just go and listen to tubular bells, like all the way through and you'll get the little, you know, the little tingles of, you know, the exorcist. And then it goes like somewhere totally different. That That's really, it, you know, um, like when you go to graduation or something and they play pomp and circumstance and like, that's the graduation song. And oh, yes, <laughs> it's yeah. not the graduation song. It's, you know, it wasn't <laughs> written for graduation ceremonies. It's just, you know, what we now use and what we associate right, with. Right. Right. Or, uh, uh, box Toccata and fugue, right? Oh, um, that, that being know. a Da-da-da. horror, right. Right. Yeah. Because of its um, association with the first Dracula film. Yes. Yes. But yeah. So Keenan, we talked about hindsight being 2020. Would this then be a case of hind sound <laughs> uh, or hind hearing? Actually, I, I, I don't know. Like that. Um, but no. Okay. So I want to talk about the choice to use this music, the choice to use it instead of a uh, church organ, instead mm-hmm. of a creepy choir. Keenan, this may be, and I, I'm, I mean, for sure back then, but I think still now the most unique interpretation of the devil in film. And yes, I know, you know, devil, demon, right? We talked about this before, uh, tomato, tomato, potato, pazuzu. (laughs) Um, But I'm, I'm speaking to how Hollywood has depicted the devil and demons up to this point. And yes, I'm talking about um, this music, this soft tinkling of piano keys, but I'm also talking about everything, everything in this movie from the music to the appearance of Reagan later, Mm -hmm. all the way down to the voice. And we're going to get into all of this later, but I'm mentioning it here because this music sort of kicks it off. This music (laughs) um, sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And it says, Whatever you know or think you know about the devil, toss it out the window. Um, so, yes, toss it right out the window and down the flight of stairs. Because <laughs> in this moment and moments to come, the exorcist is redefining what evil looks and sounds like. You notice there's not a lot of there's not a lot of red in this film. There's oh, no yeah. horns, uh-huh. right? There's no horns. We don't think about it now, but yeah, there's no horns. There's no hellfire. There's no brimstone. We'll see later that it's not hot, but freezing cold. And there's no uh, bargain like the Faust devil. There's, there's, yeah, there's, there's no, no, yeah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm holding her hostage for this or that. Right, right. There's no like selling your soul or, or uh, signing a contract right. or, or any of that stuff, right? No temptation, whatever. Um, and, and the movie is, you know, colors are uh, awash in blues and greens and purples mm-hmm. and with music that's, uh, you know, with music and sounds and sights never before associated with the devil, but which are now inseparable. Right. You have like the head spinning, the pea soup, the uh, spider walk, the gangrenous uh, zombified face. It's all coming on the wings, mm-hmm. on the notes of this eerie melody that sort of whispers to you and says, hey, hey, all you religious people in the audience who think you know what the devil looks and sounds like, you know nothing. Mm-hmm. 
And all you non-religious people who think you've seen and heard it all before, you've, you haven't seen this, right? You haven't heard this. Are you scared? You should be. Right. Because oftentimes non-religious people make fun of the depictions of the devil, right? Like, oh, it's so silly. Like, there's no, I've never seen anybody walking around with horns or hoofed feet or whatever. What a silly little thing. So here it is for you, right? Um, this would be something that might, you know, that is scary to you. I also want to speak a little bit to how this scene with Chris walking down O Street, because that's what this is, folks. This is Washington's famous O Street. Um, as the leaves fall and the music plays, I can't help but feel like this is the beginning of our story. Am I mm-hmm. am I crazy? Did Friedkin set it up to make me feel this way? We've, al- we've already been in the movie for 15 minutes. We've seen, we've been to Iraq. Mm-hmm. We've been in a house. We've had breakfast where we've been on a film set. We've seen so many characters already. And yet I can't help but feel as this music plays and as Chris is walking home that it is here mm-hmm. that our story really begins. Uh, Keenan, what's going on here? What is what is freaking doing to make me feel this way? Or am I just crazy? <laughs> You're not crazy. I was noticing that this is the first um, moment we've had in the movie that is like calm and peaceful, really, of, of all of them, right? Because even when we have our conversations with um, with Willie and Carl, there's some drama there. Like this is the only time in the movie so far where it's just like, hey, it's okay. <laughs> so we're like re-ramping up, right? Like, um, this moment of calm. And then we have um, the introduction of this music again, and that it makes remind us like, oh, we're in a horror movie. Like is our first indication of that. Um, and we're going to have a couple moments later on in the next few minutes that are calm again, but this is the very first one. Right. Yeah. Ah. And so as we walk, we see a couple of things. Leaves are falling. Uh, some kids run by in Halloween costume. And so I guess we must infer that this is on Halloween. This must um, be Halloween night. Or or is it like, I don't know what if people dressed up um, nowadays. I, I dress up for Halloween on Thursday of when Halloween this year is on Monday. <laughs> like that was my, I don't know if that was the case back then that people did that. There's um, potentially, I hesitate to point out mistakes in movies. There's a potential um, a potential continuity mistake in that shot that we were looking at that uh, that transitions from Iraq to Georgetown and we're slowly zooming into the house. Um, you can, if you want to go back and look at it and be a dick and make fun of a really great movie, um, there is a sign that, that this production didn't have control over probably that says Merry Christmas on it. Oh. <laughs> so I, I hid that from, from you for now. Because <laughs> mistakes are not, you know, some people love pointing out the mistakes. I'm not a big fan of it. But but yeah, so you could you if you happen to have read that sign that said Merry Christmas, and now, um, now you have uh, the film telling you it's Halloween. So I would trust the film more. This is Halloween. When I saw that, I, I was like, no, th- like this is inarguably, uh, it, right. it's Halloween. There's no like, other expectation for it, right? Uh, the costumes are hard to make out. The only one I can identify is a witch. Mm-hmm. And I remember that from the first time I saw this when I was very, very young. And I remember seeing this witch and feeling uneasy, but not knowing why. Um, and, and I think now like I'm older and I can kind of like uh, uh, reconstruct the, the, the feeling I had. I think it's because it's like this hint of something, but it's in in the guise, literally, uh, of something innocent, right? It's Halloween. Kids dress up as witches and devils, and it's completely innocent, mm-hmm. right? But I also like how it's this combination of uh, the theme of children and also the theme of the supernatural. And you see it for just a second, and it's gone. It's like Friedkin saying, hey, remember this? This is the thing we do. Kids dress up as witches and devils every year, right? It's, it's you know, he's bringing it home. He's like, yeah, this is a thing that is like familiar to us and normal, and uh, but it's referencing these um these spooky things Mm -hmm. after this we pass uh, a couple of nuns looking 
very ghostly as their robes and habits flutter in the breeze. Sort of reminds me a, a, a little of those spectral figures uh, shrouded in black that we saw in the oh, Iraq yeah. scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if uh, Friedkin is calling back to that uh, intentionally. Or maybe, yeah. So maybe, maybe it's not a callback, but just if you look at it as, a, as total, like Friedkin seems to like uh, things on the edges of the frame that that are sort of spooky, but that we can justify as being like, oh, that's just, that's regular. That's normal. That's just how they do right. in Iraq. These are nuns. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then the music does something really cool. Uh, Just as Chris is passing by this church and we hear someone say, there's not a day in my life that I don't feel like a fraud. There's this jagged, uh, uh, discordant note that stops Chris in her tracks as she notices, yes, it's that gloomy priest from before uh, who seems to be consoling the other priest or or perhaps he's clutching that other priest in uh desperation i guess that all depends on which one of them feels like a fraud right who Um, is saying that yeah who's saying that and i like this movie's decision to keep that hidden uh from us at this point like again if you've seen this movie a hundred times if you've seen this movie before you know what this actor's voice sounds like but he has not spoken yet uh, in this movie. So for first viewers, it's like, who said that? Which one of them said that? Right. Um, Chris I was stops. wondering mm-hmm. even this time, even knowing that I, I, <laughs> I assumed that it was the other guy, um, right. uh, which would be quite interesting that both of them are experiencing this and, and, uh, and, you know, father Karras isn't like, so, so in that way, if it's the other guy saying it, then, then this guy s- says to father Karras, I'm having this crisis of faith. And father uh-huh. Karras doesn't say like, Oh, me too. Right, like that's right. an interesting take on it. Or it's Father yes. Karras who, as you say, has said it, and then he is is clutching to his friend, like like please help me with this, which is, you know, two both of them work. <laughs> both yes, of them yes. are, are incredibly interesting. And I'm glad I'm glad you pointed that out. I wanted to. Uh, I was thinking about uh, saying that, but like I'm I'm pretty confident that I know uh, what this actor's voice sounds like, mm-hmm. and I can pick it out. You know, right. um, but even yeah, listening to this, I was like, the, like okay, the the beginning sounds a little bit like not him, mm-hmm. but then when he says the word priest, I'm like, wait a minute, this mm-hmm. could be him. It's like just because he has a very specific way of saying priest, as we'll see in uh, other other uh, minutes. Mm-hmm. But um, to what you're saying, Keenan, it is actually very important as to who is saying this because of this gloomy priest's job. So yes, we know that he is a priest. And in Mm -hmm. later minutes, we're going to find out that um, he has a specific uh, job within the church um, that might have to do with, uh, you know, uh, helping people who are uh, going through crises of faith. And isn't that kind of, uh, you know, interesting, right? Because, you know, of, of what he's also going through. So yeah, very good choice to have the movie not let us know who said that line. Right. Uh, the book does go uh, into a little bit more, gives us a little bit more insight into this scene. So let us have a listen. A reading from the book of Blatty. Chris walked homeward. She was tired. At the corner of 36th and O, she signed an autograph for an aging Italian grocery clerk who had hailed her from the doorway of his shop. She wrote her name and warm best wishes on a brown paper bag. Waiting to cross, she glanced diagonally across the street to a Catholic church. Holy something or other. John F. Kennedy had married Jackie there, she had heard, had worshipped there. She tried to imagine it. John F. Kennedy, among the votive lights and the pious, wrinkled women. John F. Kennedy, bowed in prayer, I believe. A detente with the Russians, I believe, I believe. Apollo 4, among the rattlings of the beads, I believe. The resurrection and the life ever. That. That's it. That's the grabber. She watched as a beer truck lumbered by with a clink of quivering warm wet promises. She crossed. 
As she walked down O and past the grade school auditorium, a priest rushed by from behind her, hands in the pockets of a nylon windbreaker. Young, very tense, in need of a shave. Up ahead, he took a right, turning into an easement that opened to a courtyard behind the church. Chris paused by the easement, watching him, curious. He seemed to be heading for a white frame cottage. An old screen door creaked open and still another priest emerged. He looked glum, very nervous. He nodded curtly toward the young man, and with lowered eyes he moved quickly toward a door that led into the church. Once again, the cottage door was pushed open from within. Another priest. It looked, hey, it is. The one who was smiling when Burke said, fuck. Only now he looked grave as he silently greeted the new arrival, his arm around his shoulder in a gesture that was gentle and somehow parental. He led him inside, and the screen door closed with a slow, faint squeak. Chris stared at her shoes. She was puzzled. What's the drill? She wondered if Jesuits went to confession. Faint rumble of thunder. She looked up at the sky. Would it rain? The resurrection of the... Yeah. Yeah, sure. Next Tuesday. Flashes of lightning crackled in the distance. Don't call us, kid. We'll call you. She tugged up her coat collar and slowly moved on. She hoped it would pour. So this gives us a little more about how Chris is feeling. Um, she's a skeptic, but you almost get this feeling that she wants to believe in something. And perhaps she did once. We know she's divorced. And we come to find from the book that before Reagan, she lost a child. Um, how it must feel after all that to be walking home surrounded by nuns and priests and promises of redemption and of happy ever afters and to be sure, so sure that it just doesn't work that way, at least not for you. Mm -hmm. After reading this, I, I looked back at our minute and you can tell she is preoccupied with something as she walks home. She uh, uh, smiles to the trick-or-treaters, but that smile quickly vanishes in that very same shot as the heavy thoughts kind of take over. Yeah, I love right? that moment, right? Like the, um, I love that in a lot of films, but I think it works a lot here. Like here's the outward persona and then, and then when mm -hmm. you're alone, this is what you are. Right. And she's an actor, so mm -hmm. she, she can do that, right? She can turn it on and off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And she's walking home. She's fidgeting. She's playing with a leaf. She, she glances at these nuns, which again, I'm looking at it now with what almost seems like apprehension. Um, right before she overhears the priests, she's crushing up that leaf and she's flinging it away, perhaps to like in an attempt to like banish those mm -hmm. thoughts. Right. But she stops when she notices this priest that she's sort of fascinated with. She remembers him. She she keeps running into him. There's priests all over the place, right? What is it about this one? Mm -hmm. What indeed? We'll have to wait until Blatty and Free can decide to reveal him to us. But for now, with Chris, we're, we're just as fascinated, just as curious, just as hopeful. Yeah. And, and we get an idea, right, of the, the Catholicness of, of this. And uh, so in the book, she's talking about Kennedy. And that was an exposure for a lot of people to Catholicism because it had been um, so separate from mainstream Protestant thought. And Kennedy's the first Catholic president. We've only had one other since. It's Biden. So, you know, a huge jump in between. Um, right. And, and so there were people who didn't want to vote for Kennedy because he was Catholic. Um, and so then having him in the White House and having, you know, Protestant see what that was like and humanizing Catholicism for so many of them. Wow. Yeah. It's so weird. Like, like growing up Catholic, it's, it's hard for me to look at, um, like how other people view Catholics, like Catholics, you know, from, from the outside looking in. Um, I mean, I know all the stereotypes and I know all the, you know, kind of like all the, you know, the skeletons talking about skeletons. I know like all the, all the, <laughs> 
ooh, sorted stuff that that you know that we got up to, and and eh, maybe still get up to. <laughs> well, uh, I assumed you know. everyone was Catholic because we were Catholic when I was a kid. Yeah, it's it's one of those like like when I when I uh, uh, left Las Vegas and went uh, to other states, and I was like, where are all the slot machines? <laughs> Where are all the, you know. Right. I'm here at the grocery store. And first of all, the grocery store closes at 10 o'clock. What's with that? What is that? And all there are yeah. no slot machines at the grocery store. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> Things are strange here. Yes. Uh, but it turns out, Keenan, we were the strange ones. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, but yeah. So uh, yeah, that is it uh, for uh, everything I have for this minute. Keenan, do, do you got anything else? No, I think we got it. Okay. So- Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Until next time, folks. The the power power of Orson Orson Welles compels. Ah, the French. Ah, the exorcist. That's green, green pea soup. Oh yes, green pea soupness. Oh my god. Uh, okay. Great.